On today's episode, Dave Stahoviak and I share about ways to reduce the potential for introducing bias while grading exams. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Welcome to episode 67. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and today I'm again joined by Dave Stahoviak. Welcome back, Dave. Hey, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. I just gave the first exam in, actually in all of my classes, but specifically today I'll be talking about the one that has more traditional, a more traditional type of an exam in it. And I learned a lot, and I blogged a bit about it, but one aspect I wanted to share about today on the show is just the opportunities, opportunities sounds good the potential that we all have to be biased when we're grading exams. Yeah, you had really uh, been a teacher for me in this way. And I remember seeing you do some of these things early on and just how you tried to reduce your bias and your grading and thinking like, wow, that's really interesting that you're thinking of it that way. And also a lot of work and also really cool that you did it. And so I think that since those earlier days, you've figured out some ways to be really efficient with this as well, too. So I'm, I'm excited to explore more of that today. Yeah. And I, and I always want to be cognizant that I've never completely fixed the problem because all of the things that I'm going to bring up, even though I have strategies and approaches for reducing that potential bias, we all have that within us. And I think being cognizant is important to do. One thing to, to start out talking about some of the risks of bias in grading exams, we start out with the halo effect. And Dave, I know you and I know a lot about the halo effect because it comes up in hiring and we're interviewing someone and we discover something that we like about a lot about them. And then that overflows into other areas and potentially clouds our vision. It also can happen in the reverse. So it may be something negative about someone we learn about them early and can't quite shake that to be able to truly evaluate their potential in a job. Well, that comes up in terms of grading exams too. Well, and the classic example of this would be on both those ends, there's a student that we really like and we've developed a relationship with and they always participate in class. And so we can see their name on the beginning of the paper. And even if we don't think about it consciously, we are subconsciously predisposed to maybe think about, oh, this is going to be a good paper. And the opposite's true too. So someone who's not engaged in the class, maybe has not done well in previous assignments. And so we we click on that paper to open it up to read it. And maybe we're already thinking like, oh, I hope they did better this time. And we've already got that negative bias in our minds. We'll be talking a little bit later about how to reduce the likelihood of being affected by the halo effect. But I want to just go on to the next one, which is what I call the exam based halo effect. So let's assume that I'm able to reduce the halo effect related to that person. While I'm grading their exam, I might start to experience a halo effect in itself. The exam I just gave was five essay questions and also some true, false, multiple choice, I might add. But in particular, I'm I'm sharing about the essay portion of it here. And I might go and read their first answer to those five questions and go, wow, 
rock star. This person is on it. And then have that as my lens to look at those other four questions. So that's another potential danger zone. And Dave, you actually brought up this next one early, which is great, (laughs) inflating our favorite students' grades. And I actually link in the show notes, which are going to be at teachinginhighered.com slash 67, to a few articles that look at these various risks of bias if people want to dive in a little bit deeper. But sure, and and as you said, the opposite's true. I haven't particularly found a positive connection yet with this student, and that starts to be the lens that I wear when I grade his or her exam. The other challenge I have, and we, we, when I were talking before we even started recording, I don't do a lot of traditional, what I would think of exams when I've taught before, because I teach a, lot, teach a lot at the grad level. So it tends to be more paper project-based courses and curricula. And what I found is a struggle for me, and I don't think I've addressed this effectively um, in past classes, is I'll read two or three papers, and I'll get a sense of like how the how the class is doing overall in the assignment. And, and you know this, Bonnie, sometimes as a instructor, you do a good job of assigning an assignment and you get what you expect. And sometimes you don't get exactly what you expected. And it's apparent after you've read four or five papers that you could have framed something a little differently as an instructor to get a little bit different result. And I know there have been times that some of those earlier papers that I've read have either gotten a little higher grade or a little lower grade because I haven't yet got a sense of the how the class is going. And, and in reality, it shouldn't matter because the rubric should be there. But in, in practice, I know there's times that I've probably been a little easier, a little harder because I didn't yet have a sense of how the entire class had performed on that paper, or what I expected or how clear I was and or the kind of feedback I've had to dialogue with people after grades. So that's that's the thing I also think about too when I'm when I'm grading and starting to read through exams and, and papers. That can happen. You're describing it as within you grading the exam, but it also could happen just within having graded their past assignments. Vikram David Amar calls this the expectations effect. Very similar to the halo effect, but I've graded five assignments from the student before, I'm now going to expect that he or she is likely to do just as poorly or just as well on the assignment or on the exam that that I'm grading. And then Dave, you and I know this last one well. The exhaustion factor. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone I ever talk to who teaches college loves grading for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. They just love it. That doesn't mean that this research hasn't been done, but I actually did go out and try to find some research for how people's tiredness affects their grading. But mm. I mean, it, it seems one of those things that seems so obvious, but I wasn't able to locate any studies. That, I, mean, I imagine that would be a hard one to construct. But I mean, my gosh, when we are just exhausted, that's not the best time to be grading. Yeah, and that's, I, I don't know what to do about that other than just being being conscious well, I'm going to be it. sharing with you what to do. Oh, you are. Well, later there on. we yeah. go. See, keep listening. <laughs> keep listening. <laughs> that's, the, that's the hook to just catch you to keep listening. Gotcha. Now, actually, speaking of which, unless you have any other risks of bias and grading exams that you want to add, Dave, we'll shift over to how to prevent all yeah. of this, or at least yeah, how to I, reduce the likelihood of it. I think the only thing I'd add is what you said earlier is you're never going to eliminate this entirely. We're all human beings and as good as a job as you do is re- of reducing bias, you're never going to eliminate it. So being conscious of the fact that you're human, it's going to be there. What can you do to minimize it, which is what we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about. It's the happy side now. Yes. Or at least happier. Much happier. One of the main things that I do 
and I and I just do this, I'm committed to doing this is blind grading. And of course, it depends on whether we're administering our exams on some sort of a handwritten paper format, or if we're administering our exams on an LMS, but there are solutions in either case. In my case, so far with the majority of my classes, I'm, I'm surprised to say this as techie as I am, but I use for these foundations class, I teach a, a princi- principles of marketing class. It's really just the foundations of marketing. And then I teach introduction to business. Also just a lot of terminology. It's a very breadth class. It's not a, n- neither of those classes are real depth classes. And it makes sense to have some multiple choice questions that are just going to assess basic vocabulary and terms. And then those essay questions that I'm, I attempt to make very application oriented of some of the key key things that they should be learning in the class. So what I do is I use these, of course, the fancy scantrons that it's the model number is called 886E, but it's got the scantron on the left hand side. And then on the right hand side is just it's a booklet, but it's just a a flip out one time booklet that winds up there's four pages that they can write on. And I put a sticky note over the place where they would write their name. And the sticky note has the version of the exam. I tend to do probably two exams depending on the size of the class, two different versions of the exam. So it's either an A or a B, a one or a two. So again, the sticky note, the only thing I see on that sticky note is which version of the exam that's being graded. That way I don't put it through the Scantron, it's the wrong version. And then the sticky note is there to cover the student's name. I don't want to know whose exam it is that I'm grading. And I and sometimes actually, if I use too light of a sticky note, I can still see their name. And then I just put another sticky note on <laughs> so that I just, I, cause then I'll, I'll shuffle them back up because I, I don't want to know whose exam I'm grading. This is, I, I've seen you at various stages of this process and sticky notes laying around the house of, or stacks of sticky notes. And uh, the one thing I'm not sure I'm clear on is how I've never seen it start to finish though. So you get the stack of exams and then you just go through and sticky note all of them at the beginning. Is that after you get the exams back or how does that work? Do you have the students do that? How does that work? I'm so glad you're asking this. This is this is less on the efficient or on the bias and more on the efficiency thing. At the start of every semester, every student needs to bring me however many scantrons for however many exams we're going to have that semester. So in the case of the, the class I'm talking about today, they're going to do three exams this semester. They brought me about a week before the exam. They brought me three scantrons got it then i made the photocopies of the first exam and i tuck the exam inside of each one of the scantrons right inside of that little flap that that thing and then i put the sticky notes on that way i can also and this is a topic for another day but it reduces the likelihood of people sitting next to each other who are taking the same version and then copying from one another and I can see from the front of the room, I could probably see from a mile away, <laughs> the, I make the colors of the sticky notes drastically different from one another. So there's no doubt I could tell visually looking at the entire class if by some either mistake on my part or dishonesty on their part, people are trying to sit next to each other who are taking the same exam. You're very strategic yeah. on this. I had no idea there was so much uh, so much thought that had gone into this. Then what I do is I take all the version ones, because they're all in a stack now, right? All the version one exams tucked in the scantrons with the sticky notes on top, all the versions two, and I make it go every other so that when I'm passing them out in the class, it can happen as soon as, as quickly as possible. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That was maybe more than some people wanted to know, but I am sharing it. I'm risking sharing it because it has saved me so much time and so much headache. And then I think to be fair to the students, it gets them the exams quicker. 
Well, and the interesting thing too is it's not like a secret. You tell them that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. Like you're using blind grading so that they also know that when you are grading their exam that that you don't know who they are. Yep. And how do you work through the handwriting thing? I mean, do you rec- I mean, you have enough students that you probably don't recognize handwriting as much, but there are only a few cases where I know who it is that I'm taking. I have had some students who are just so far below the mean of the class in terms of their abilities to write uh, okay. that I can tell. And, and and I both mean physically their writing is very childlike. And I also mean their ability to string together a sentence. Uh, it, unfortunately, there has been, I would say over the course of a year, maybe I'm talking about a student hmm. over the course of an entire year, all my classes, that's, that's where I can go. Oh, unfortunately, I know who this is. Then there also have sometimes been students from other countries who they're writing just, they may just not quite word things the same way that we would. And I don't necessarily, that's not what I'm measuring in terms of my grading. So it doesn't affect their grade. But in those cases, I also know who they are. And maybe to their, maybe for them, it's a positive thing because they're usually quite bright and, and intelligent. And, and it's just like a quirky language difference that we have. But hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. But, but for the most part, no, I can't tell who it is. The other, we were, I was talking mostly about my practices for written exams, but I also want to mention that whatever learning management system your university is using, you should check in and see if they have the opportunity to do blind grading within it. We use Moodle at one of the institutions that I teach at, at my main institution, and, and it, uh, in some recent version, we, we're never on the, <laughs> the most current version, so I know for at least a couple of versions of it, it offers blind grading. It works great. I don't know whose essay it is I'm grading. That That's a nice nice technique there too is that available through some of the the like turn it like turn it in for example can you go through when you're doing grading and and see have it remove the name because sometimes people put their names like right on the paper and all that is there options i don't do believe so and turn it in i've not seen that as an option but if someone listening knows different i would love to hear no, i'd love to know too because that's something i've never i do everything virtually with things like turn it in when i've taught classes mm-hmm. and so it, that's that's an obstacle i've had for implementing that if you really wanted to, you could have it be submitted in Moodle, not through Turnitin, but then you're not going to have the plagiarism protection. So it's right. a catch-22 exactly. there. Exactly. Another technique to reduce potential bias is to grade by question, not by exam. I was speaking of earlier that one potential is not based on the person, because let's assume we're using blind grading. We don't know whose exam we're grading, but we start grading question number one, then we go number two, then we go number three we're starting to introduce our own bias just based on the quality of the most recent answer that we read. And this is a practice that I know works. And there's some research that shows that that would reduce our bias. And I don't do it. Oh, and so why don't you do it? I will admit it takes too long. Because you so in that case, you'd have like a essay question one, you'd read on one exam, and then you'd have to go to the next exam, read essay question one for every through the whole also like 90 people. Yes. Yeah. Times however many questions. That's the kind of thing where an online through one of the LMSs, if that was automated, that would be really cool if you mm-hmm. could do that. Yeah. I know it works. I, I know it's one other thing to decrease. It is not worth the opportunity cost to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because there, I mean, there, I'm trying to think of a better term than low hanging, low hanging fruit, but maybe there's one, if you just did one thing out of this conversation today that helps you to reduce your bias, that's great. It doesn't mean you have to do every single mm-hmm. thing because it may not be practical in your situation and with the logistics of your classroom. 
This next one I also logistically just haven't had the opportunity to do, but it is inner rater reliability practices. So we know that when we grade exams, we're grading them through our own ideas in our mind about what a correct answer should look like or, or what a good enough answer should look like. In my case, many times these essay questions at the end are out of 10 points. Well, what, who's to say what's the difference between an eight and a nine? And one of the ways we can do that through qualitative measures is inner rater reliability and, and have someone else, another set of people grade them. And actually, we can then even begin to educate ourselves and, and pull out the outliers and say, well, why did you think this one was so high? And I thought it was so low. And we can actually improve the quality overall of our grading. And if we're teaching multiple people are teaching the same class that can really help improve that too. It's a really good practice. I'm just not in a position where I necessarily have colleagues who are too interested in doing that. And I am the only one who teaches this particular class I'm sharing as an example today. One of the things I have done, just because I don't have colleagues who necessarily would find that to be a fun thing to do in the afternoon or in the morning, or really any time, <laughs> is I have had people in the business world take the exams or at least look at them and say, what am I asking that you don't really think people should know at this level? Or And I think that helps to, not necessarily on the grading front, maybe I should try it on the grading front actually, is, is start to reach out to business professionals and what kind of grade would you give this? Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know you had done that. You ask me sometimes on things. On the uh, test itself. Oh, I guess I do on the answers, huh? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I am the source of all wisdom on well, of every business question, of yes, course. Of course. Um, but it's interesting. Well, we and, had, no, we had something like that just the other night because because I, we did. I yeah. said on, it was not for this class, it was a different class. And I said, I was actually, I am um, <laughs> a bad person. I was making fun of a student's answer. And then you said, But in no, your defense, I, you were not doing it in a public forum, just no, to me. No, it was privately. And, and I'm pretty sure that at Tattooed Professor... Kevin Gannon said that's okay when he was on the show. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that sure, conversation. Yes. In, the, in the break room, the water cooler, we're allowed to do that. But you came back and you said, no, I think this is what she means. And then and then later on in her answer, she proved that you were right, that that actually, I just oh, didn't know didn't. what she meant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I said it was like, well, it's kind of the start of the answer sort of toward what maybe is. Right, yeah, right and that's thinking. actually so good too when you teach your students to use examples because it was by her giving an example that I could tell uh, that you were correct in your assessment of what her, her language meant. Yes, so that's one other practice. We have a few more to go. One, and this is back to our energy level. If we're just exhausted, that's not a good time to be grading. So blocking off time for grading in our calendar during peak energy times. I know for me, a peak energy time is going to be right after I get done exercising. And on days when I am not in the classroom, I'll tend to exercise in the morning, come home from the gym with the kids, the child caregiver arrives, and then I can get started right away with something that requires that high energy and focus that comes from those great endorphins. Yeah. And, and can I um, say something that maybe is somewhat related to grading with integrity too, is also giving feedback in a timely way. And I know mm -hmm. this is always a challenge for, and especially for you, Bonnie, like how many students you have, I get it off, I get off easy in some ways um, or, and more challenging in others. When I teach a class, it's adjunct and it's a master's level class and they're often five weeks. So if the first assignment isn't due until week two, and I take a week and a half to grade it, it's like practically the end of the class before someone even has one first data point of how they're doing in the class and getting some sort of formal feedback. So I think that that's something really to consider if you are running classes that are more abbreviated and, you know, very much the model of a lot of universities are doing more, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
Shorter. Yeah, shorter. There's a better word for this, though. I don't know why I'm blanking. Truncated. Truncated glasses um, where you've got this, this really fast schedule. You need to also get grading back fast. And so I try to make a practice whenever things come in is I'll block out when I write the syllabus and I'm teaching a class you know, for five weeks. I'll block out time that next morning after the papers come in so I can literally get them back to students within 24 hours. And that way, um, we can even talk about it the next class period and I can talk about you know what I saw in the papers. And so that comes along with integrity too of like it's it you want to give people feedback in a short class up front quickly so they have a chance to do something different on the next assignment. You spoke about this earlier, but we also want to be transparent and over communicate our practices and the rationale you mentioned when I'm passing out those exams that have the sticky notes, I'm explaining this is so I'm not biased when I grade your exam. I don't want to know whose it is. That's why the sticky notes here. There will still be some that won't get it until the next exam, but that's why over communication, saying it not just once, but every time I do an exam to remind them. And then lastly, to your point, Dave, you were talking about how when we grade the earlier exams in the process, we might, that that's, we don't have enough of a sample size yet to get a whole sense of the class. And even though we wish that doesn't affect things, it still does sometimes. Mm-hmm. I will oftentimes save the first two, maybe three exams that I graded first and go back and look at them again after I've graded all the other ones and see if there's any of that going on there and if I need to make any adjustments. Oh, interesting. And do you ever make adjustments on that based on what you've read? In oh, the- sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? And what, what do you, where do you find that you fall? Do you find that you were too easy, too hard? Do you tend too- to trend easier any one side? I... Uh, or does it just depend on the assignment? And- it depends. I think mostly too hard... Although sometimes I have that bias where the first question was so good and then going on to the others, I probably amplified those, which is back to probably I should take care of my exam-based biases, but it takes so long. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Anything else, Dave, that you want to add about having less bias when we are grading exams? Yeah, I think just to reiterate what we mentioned earlier of take do one thing, so do something. And maybe it's covering Mm -hmm. up the name or maybe it is thinking about the process you're using when you're actually sitting down the grade or the timing, um, any one of those executed well will do you probably better as far as reducing bias than trying to do a little bit of a bunch of them. I'm sure, Dave, and I missed things too. We would welcome any additional ideas you have for us and the rest of the community at teachinginhighered.com slash 67. This is the point in the show in which we do our recommendations And I want to recommend, I I know I've mentioned before on the show that I really love music and that's something that I like to always have going before every class. And sometimes when they break up into groups, I'll play a little bit of music too. Well, one recommendation I want to have for all of you is to ask your students what they want to listen to before class. And I was just introduced to a new artist by a student who I asked that question to yesterday. And here's who he introduced me to. This is Leon Bridges. He's singing Coming Home. But we played the whole album, and we didn't have time to play the whole album, but throughout the day, I played the whole album, and it's great. And I was so glad that I asked him, and now I have that connection with him and a new album to listen to on Apple Music. I love that human connection you bring into the classroom with your students. Like, you're always playing music and talking to them about what's of interest to them personally, and it's just really neat that you do that. It's really a selfish thing. Just want more good groups to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wins. (laughs) Everybody wins. It's a great video actually on YouTube. I linked to it on on iTunes, but you can see him on YouTube. It's a great, 
great kind of old school video. Nice. Nice. Very cool. All right, Dave, what would you like to recommend to the listeners today? I am going to actually recommend a show from my podcast, Coaching for Leaders, which airs every week like this show. And I recently aired an episode called How to Be Present and Productive. And it was with a guest named Jeremy Kubitschek. And he's the author of the new book for leaders, Five Gears, How to Be Present and Productive When There is Never Enough Time, which is a very attractive title to me. Uh, But what was really fun was the conversation that came out of it. He's basically looked at how you interact with people, and this is just as applicable for faculty, of how you interact with people on a daily basis and what, what mode you are in, depending on what's most appropriate for the situation. And he uses a driving analogy, the five gears, like a stick shift of a car, in order to communicate that. And it's one of those models that I just like, it just intuitively really made sense to me and helped me think about the time and where I put my energy each day. And uh, it's definitely given me lots to think about. So uh, if that is of interest to you and you're looking for a good model for how to think about how you're using your time well and how to be more productive, coachingforleaders.com slash 211, episode 211 is where to go. Since Dave and I both have our doctorates in leadership, I will confess to having a bias against sometimes you'll have someone on your show and I go, oh, it's another four things to do this and five things to do this. And and I kind of shut off. And I did that a little bit with this idea in the beginning because it seemed like, oh, it's going to be another one of those self-help book kind of things and not research-based and probably not going to be particularly helpful. So I kind of went into it with more of a negative mindset, but I do enjoy listening to you talk. Oh, well, thank you. I kept with it. It's a good thing you married me. (laughs) (laughs) I was really blown away though, because even though, I mean, it's a simple model and it it is of course an analogy, so it's not going to be completely research-based, but it just to introduce the power of introducing vocabulary that is in common in a culture can be so helpful. And one of the things he talked about was with his coworkers, how sometimes some of them, one of them is in a different gear than he is, and it's not appropriate for the situation. And they literally even have sign language they'll do to each other of holding up the number of fingers for the gears. I don't want to give too much away other than to say just the power that that can be. I think this would help people listening, both in terms of communicating better with faculty, with students, and then also in your own families and with loved ones, just being able to forgive the extension of the analogy, but shift gears to just have healthier relationships and, and be more healthy yourself. Yeah. And I think about that a lot in the terms of the show of what do what can be brought in that's not just kind of like a three-step or five-step thing. Um, but what's really unique and different, and I really like this model that it's unique and different and frames things in a really simple way. So that's my recommendation for this week. Well, thanks so much, Dave, for being back on the show today. It was great having you here talking about things we can do to reduce bias. And I just want to let people listening know, even though I have enjoyed having Dave here these last two weeks, Dave's going to be gone for a while because I've got some great guests booked for the coming week. So lots of great topics to look forward to. I hope you'll keep listening and we'll see you around soon. As always, if you have yet to subscribe to the Teaching in Higher Ed weekly update, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Why would you want to do that? Well, you're going to get the show notes to every episode automatically in your email, along with an article on teaching or productivity. And when you first subscribe, you will get the free e-guide for 19 tools to help you use technology to facilitate learning. Which, by the way, is a very cool guide. So if you haven't gotten that, Bonnie wrote the whole thing yourself and it's got lots of ideas on how you use things. 
and would also love to have other people be able to discover the show beyond you. So if you'd share it with friends and also consider writing a review or rating it on iTunes, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash iTunes. And we'd love your feedback at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks for listening. 